0: For, during, and after his presidency, Donald Trump is accused of engaging in criminal activity.
1: All the criminal cases against former President Trump moved forward last week. For Sunday, February 18th, this is all things considered from NPR News. I'm Camila Dominowski. Ahead, a neurosurgeon in Gaza faces an agonizing choice. Should he flee with his family to safety?
2: I couldn't leave my patients, but also as the head of the department, I was supporting my team.
1: Also, Boston explores reparations for slavery. A baker reflects on the magic of sourdough. And y'all, the rent is still too dang high.
3: In some markets, rents are actually going down now. But we're in such a hole from those massive rent increases that it's going to take a little while to get ourselves out of that.
4: First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. Denmark's prime minister says European countries still have more weapons and ammunition they could send to Ukraine immediately. Terry Schultz has more. A day after Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky told Munich's annual security conference his country
3: can win against Russia with more military support, Danish Prime Minister Mette Frederiksen called out her counterparts who say they have nothing to spare.
5: I'm sorry to say, friends, there are still ammunition in stock in Europe. We have weapons. We have air defense. We don't have to use ourselves at the moment that we should deliver to Ukraine. Denmark has already given
3: Ukraine its entire supply of artillery systems. Also speaking at the conference, European Union Foreign Policy Chief Joseph Burrell said while Europe's weapons manufacturers have significantly increased their production capacity, governments are still not making large-scale orders, either for
4: Ukraine or to refill their own stockpiles. For NPR News, I'm Terry Schultz in Brussels. The World Health Organization says the biggest hospital in southern Gaza is no longer functioning after a raid by Israeli forces, and that its teams haven't been allowed to enter the Nasser Hospital in the city of Khan Yunus. The BBC's Paul Adams has more.
6: It's extremely
7: difficult to get an accurate picture of what's going on inside Nasser Hospital four days after Israeli troops first entered. One source inside the hospital, who did not want to be named, said 11 patients had died due to interruptions in the supply of electricity and oxygen and that several doctors had been arrested. But Israeli military officials are hailing their operation at Nasser Hospital as a great success. They say they found Hamas fighters and weapons inside and are doing what they can to keep the hospital running.
4: The BBC's Paul Adams reporting. In Minnesota, authorities say two police officers and a firefighter are dead after responding to a call of domestic violence in the Minneapolis suburb of Burnsville. The suspect is also dead. The state's governor, Tim Waltz, says we can't take for granted police and first responders' bravery and sacrifices that they make every day. On Wall Street, there are some critical earnings and economic data expected later this week. And Pierre's David Gura has more.
8: Companies continue to update investors on their recent performance, and on Wednesday, NVIDIA will report earnings for the last three months of 2023. The California-based tech company, which designs high-end microchips for the computers that power artificial intelligence systems, continues to be a standout on Wall Street. Shares of NVIDIA are up more than 50% so far this year and more than 250% over the last 12 months. Also on Wednesday, the Federal Reserve will release minutes from its January meeting, which took place before the U.S. government released stronger-than-expected inflation data, and several Fed policymakers are scheduled to speak on Thursday. David Gura, NPR News, New York.
4: And Wall Street and bond markets are closed on Monday in observance of President's Day. You're listening to NPR News from Washington.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Some state and local lawmakers are pushing to keep a Cambridge emergency shelter open around the clock. A former courthouse in East Cambridge is currently only open at night, but State Representative Mike Conley says he's calling on city and state officials to open the shelter full time. Meantime, two nonprofits are opening a day site in Chelsea for people who spend the night in Cambridge so they have somewhere to go during the day. An advocacy organization claims that Worcester's public transit agency removed ads calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. Community Alliance for Peace and Justice paid for a month's worth of ads on the city's buses, but the group says that the Worcester Regional Transit Authority pulled two of the ads down after a week. The Transit Authority tells the Worcester Telegram that it pulled those ads over concerns for drivers' safety. Two Massachusetts gun shops are included on a federal database of stores that sell weapons used in crimes. That's according to data compiled by USA Today. The database tracks stores that have at least 25 guns traced to crimes in a year with a time to crime of under three years. The Massachusetts stores are in Woburn and Worcester. Gun violence prevention advocates say those stores are being targeted by traffickers. Well, people are getting out of town for February vacation at levels matching pre pandemic times. Chuck Nardoza, the managing director of travel for AAA Northeast, says this is the time of year that a lot of people think about going elsewhere if they can.
9: One of the biggest misconceptions is that spring break is really just for families. Um, Spring break and winter break are really for everyone. So, you know, we see a variety of destinations from the theme parks, um, cruising is just on fire.
6: Nardoza says for people in the Northeast, top destinations include Florida and Aruba. Europe is a popular choice for people without children at home. Clear skies overnight. Lows drop to the 20s, sunny 30s tomorrow and again on Tuesday. 34 degrees now in Boston.
9: Support for NPR comes from NPR stations. Other contributors include the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org.
1: This is all things considered from NPR News. I'm Camila Dominowski and for Scott Detro. Russia says it has taken full control of Avdiivka, a strategically important town in Ukraine's east, marking Russia's first significant gain in almost a year. Ukrainian troops withdrew in part because they are low on ammunition. Western aid hasn't come through, while North Korea and Iran send arms to Russia. We're joined by NPR's Joanna Kakissis, who is in central Ukraine. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Camila. So let's start with this town that Russian troops just captured. Why is it in particular important?
10: Well, Evdivka has been a Ukrainian stronghold since 2014 when Russia first invaded this eastern region that it's in called Donetsk. This withdrawal gives Russian President Vladimir Putin a win before next month's presidential elections where, of course, he's the only real candidate. If the Russians manage to keep Avdivka, it also gives the Kremlin access to more industrial resources in Donetsk. Avdivka has a big Soviet-era plant that produces a coal-based fuel called coke, not the beverage, Hmm. the fuel. Uh, But there's not much left of Avdivka. Only a few hundred residents are still there, and they're hiding in the basements of ruined buildings.
1: How did the Ukrainians lose their grip on Avdivka, especially since this area has resisted Russian forces for 10 years now? So a couple of things, Camila.
10: The Russians employed familiar scorched-earth tactics that they've used in other Ukrainian cities, as well as in Chechnya and Syria. The Russians send wave after wave of soldiers on the ground. The Ukrainians said no matter how many Russian soldiers they killed, more would just come and come. The Institute for the Study of War, which is in Washington, says the Russians also managed to overpower Ukrainian troops by using glide bombs, which Ukraine has been unable to shoot down. The days before the withdrawal were very grim. Ukrainian soldiers on the ground were writing on Instagram describing hellish scenes of constant bombing and artillery fire and how they didn't have enough ammunition to keep up. One soldier wrote, the road to Evdivka is covered with our corpses. Uh, Ukraine's new military chief decided early Saturday morning that the human cost of keeping troops there was
1: just too high, and he ordered a withdrawal. You mentioned a lack of ammunition. How is that affecting momentum on the battlefield? So look, you know, Russia
10: is a much bigger country than Ukraine, and it has always had a much bigger arsenal. In fact, the Russians are firing up to five times more artillery rounds than the Ukrainians. And the Ukrainians have have been forced to ration their ammunition on the front line. They are running really low because the supplies have been delayed. Europe promised last year to send a million rounds to Ukraine, but less than half of that has arrived. And U.S. military aid to Ukraine is stuck in Congress. President Biden called Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky on Saturday. And according to a readout of the call, Biden blamed, quote, congressional inaction, for this dwindling supply of ammunition for the Ukrainians, which has resulted now in the withdrawal of Avdivka. Mm-hmm. And at the Munich Security Conference Zelensky also made the connection between losses on the battlefield and the lack of weapons. He's saying we don't have enough weapons, especially enough long-range weapons, and Russia has them. That's why our main weapon today is our
1: soldiers and our people. Joanna, do Ukrainians blame the U.S. for not coming through on aid? Well, you know, Ukrainians are very reluctant to publicly
10: criticize the U.S. because they see Americans as their strongest allies. Uh, I was just in northeastern Ukraine in a village near the Russian border that's often shelled, and I met a woman named Victoria Chubb. She said, Look, we know Ukraine won't survive if the U.S. does not help us. She's saying, that's why my friends in the village get together every night and pray. That's all we can do. We pray for help. We pray for the war to end. And we pray for our soldiers
1: to come home alive. NPR's Joanna Kakissis in the central Ukrainian city of Dnipro. Thanks, Joanna. You're welcome. It's time for Trump's trials. <laughs>
2: This is a persecution
1: Last week, we saw developments in all four of the criminal cases facing former President Donald Trump and a nearly $355 million verdict in the New York civil fraud trial. We'll focus on one of the criminal cases today, the New York Hush Money case, which now has a trial date, March 25th, meaning this will almost certainly be the first criminal case to go to trial. This is the one about hush money payments to bury alleged affairs, which Trump covered up by falsifying business records, and how all that affected the 2016 election. My colleague Miles Park spoke with NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro and NYU law professor Melissa Murray. Miles started off by asking Professor Murray how significant it is that we have a firm start date. I think
0: it's very significant. So there's at least one trial that's going to get going. And interestingly, this is a trial where The prosecutor bringing it is not a federal prosecutor, but a state prosecutor, Alvin Bragg, the Manhattan DA, which means that if he is able to secure a conviction here, this isn't something that Trump could pardon himself afterwards with if he were president, nor is it a prosecution if it continues beyond the scope of the election that Trump could end if he becomes the president and has more power at the DOJ to determine prosecution priorities.
9: Talk us through how that intersects with the political calendar and then also how that could potentially affect some of these other cases.
8: Well, that's why I think when Melissa says it's significant, I think that she's exactly right because it does sort of set the wheels in motion now for the first of these cases to go forward. A lot of people consider this New York case to be the weakest of the four to be going forward. You know, Some people will say, well, maybe that's something that'll give Trump a chance to uh, make an argument that uh, these cases are biased or there's a witch hunt against him or whatever. But I kind of think that Having that case go first means that you're setting up the cases that have some more serious implications for him uh, going closer to the general election when you have a less friendly audience uh, on his behalf. I think that actually potentially hurts Trump, especially when we've seen polling that shows that uh, if he were convicted in any of these cases, that he would lose some support.
9: Yeah, I've heard this a lot, this idea that the New York case is the weakest of the four. Melissa, can you comment on that? I mean, is that how you feel, or is there something more to this that we're we're missing?
0: Well, I I wanted to be really clear. Part of the reason people are talking about it as the weakest case is that's how the media has presented it. Talking about it as the Hush Money case, I think it's very notable that Alvin Bragg has made a very concerted effort to talk about this case as a species of the kind of election interference that we saw in full flower in the January 6th indictments. Um, He's basically saying this is sort of a precursor, a dress rehearsal for that, where Donald Trump paid payments, um, falsified business records for the purpose of hiding a personal relationship from the american electorate and, and i don't think that this is the weakest of the cases i think there are some challenging aspects to this case um for example the crime with which Donald Trump has been charged is ordinarily a misdemeanor in New York state, but here it is being prosecuted as a felony because it is attached to or adjunct to the perpetration of another crime. Here, the apparent predicate crime is the fact of election interference, election fraud, and it may be a broader question as to what the predicate crime is, what statutes Alvin Bragg is relying on to bootstrap this into a felony level charge, and you you know, those are definitely aspects of this indictment that may well be brought up by Donald Trump's lawyers as potential defenses going
9: forward. Wondering, Melissa, can you walk us through what's actually going to happen on March 25th and uh, where this case goes from here?
0: Well, we will begin jury selection on March 25th. So, you know, there will be sort of a broad cross-section that's brought in. And from there both sides will get an opportunity to select the jury that ultimately will hear this case and ultimately render a verdict. And, you know, I think one of the things we'll look for is the bases on which both sides make requests to eliminate certain prospective jurors. I think the Trump lawyers have already suggested that they are unlikely to get a quote-unquote fair trial in the borough of Manhattan. on pushed back on that, making clear that, you know, this is a national case with national implications and national attention. If you have difficulty here, you're going to have difficulty anywhere. And so, you know, this is the jury you have, this is the jury you get. So I think I'm going to be looking for the choices that both sides make as they make their selections, make their challenges to prospective jurors.
9: Okay. And finally, to you both, can you kind of give an overview on whether anything happened this week that fundamentally changed what's happening with either of these cases or with the election more broadly?
8: What I thought was interesting was having the date for setting these cases in motion. I mean, March 25th sort of uh, is the starting line now for all of these cases. And I thought it was notable that the judge in New York said that he had been coordinating with Judge Tanya Chutkin, who is a federal judge uh, with another one of the Trump cases. They were also talking about whether there were firm dates in the Florida case with Judge Cannon uh, and how that case wasn't necessarily firm. And that's why the judge in the case was able to set March 25th. So notable here that we know that they are coordinating with each other um, and they're going to have to because they have to also consider Trump's schedule as he's on the campaign trail.
0: So one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this week is that we had news about every single one of these criminal indictments and these four criminal indictments essentially make clear that before, during, and after his presidency, Donald Trump is accused of engaging in criminal activity. So, you know, the New York DA has brought charges around these hush money payments that were in service, apparently, of defrauding the electorate about the nature of Donald Trump's personal relationship with Stormy Daniels before he was president. Um, The January 6th indictments in Georgia and in the District of the District of Columbia are about activities undertaken while he is president. And then, of course, the Mar-a-Lago documents indictment is about the retention of classified information after his presidency. I mean, we talk about the unprecedented nature of prosecuting a former president, but that is a kind of criminal tableau that really is extraordinary. And I think something that ought to register more in the way we cover these cases.
9: NYU law professor Melissa Murray and author of the forthcoming book The Trump Indictments and NPR senior political editor and correspondent Domenico Montanaro. Thanks to you both.
8: You're so welcome. Thank you.
1: You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
6: And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks for being with us. Join Radio Boston host Hesiana Deering at City Space on Monday, March 4th, for a conversation with Maria Hinosa, award-winning journalist and host of Latino USA. Tickets at WBUR.org slash events.
0: WBUR supporters include Arts Thursdays at Harvard. Back with free public art events, open to all every Thursday night.
8: harvard.edu slash arts thursdays.
6: Clear skies overnight with lows in the 20s. Sunny skies, 30s tomorrow. And sunny skies, 30s on Tuesday. Right now in Boston, it is 34 degrees.
4: I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu today vowed that Israel will fight into complete victory. This came as crowds in a West Bank city marched in support of Hamas five months into a war meant to destroy the group. Most of California is under a weather alert. The National Weather Service says an extensive storm tonight is forecast to bring high winds, rain and snow, and the chance of more flooding. This not long after back-to-back atmospheric rivers caused problems in the L.A. area. And 150,000 NASCAR fans won't get to hear the roaring of race car engines today. Rain in Florida has postponed the Daytona 500 until tomorrow. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates, all from a single platform. Learn more at indeed.com NPR. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at carnegie.org and from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is All Things Considered from NPR News.
1: I'm Camila Dominowski. The conflict in Gaza has displaced millions of people and killed tens of thousands. It's also led to brain drain of talented people who had the means to flee. Farah Husri with Side Effects Public Media has this story about a neurosurgeon in Gaza who was determined not to abandon his patients. And a note this story contains graphic descriptions of war injuries.
5: As someone from Gaza, 43 year old Dr. Hussam Aboukhder, says, times were often difficult with political turmoil and conflicts. But through it all, he remembers his parents telling him Gazans are destined to struggle. But tomorrow is going to be better and he thinks that's why he wanted to become someone important so he could help his people
2: since i was young i've dreamt of studying medicine i would always tell myself Sam, will not be anything except a
5: doctor but after high school in the late 90s abugder came face to face with the realization being a Gazan hamstrings you in many ways Take travel, for
2: example. You have to plan for it. You have to see if the crossing is open, if the crossing is closed. Always so many things.
5: This became very apparent when he applied for a medical school. He was accepted, yes, but there was only one school at the time, and it was in Jerusalem. He would need a permit from Israeli authorities to leave and re-enter Gaza. Gaza tensions between Gaza and Israel were constantly shifting. What if at some point he were denied access to Jerusalem altogether?
2: Frankly, some people told me at any point, you may be on your second or third year and they kick you out or not give you a permit. So I was always scared of
6: that.
5: So Abu Ghder decided to try and study medicine abroad. He landed a scholarship for a medical school in Sudan. It was a six-year degree, and he didn't go back to Gaza to see his family, not even once. He worried he would get stuck there due to Israeli restrictions. But when he graduated, he returned home to work at Al-Shifa Hospital, the enclave's biggest medical complex.
2: I got a job as a general practitioner at the neurosurgery department. And honestly, I started to really love the specialty. It's a very delicate specialty, and I found myself in it.
5: Then, in 2008, war broke out between Israel and Hamas. Dozens of severely injured Palestinians were rushed to Al-Shifa Hospital. But in those days, very few doctors had the neurosurgical training needed to treat these patients, including Abu Ghder.
2: And that made me more determined to become specialized, to be able to serve people the way they deserve to be served.
5: But to become a neurosurgeon, that training did not exist in Gaza at the time. So Abu only choice was to leave home once again. So
2: I landed the scholarship to Jordan. Thank God I accomplished my goal and the dream I had. I knew that for me it is Gaza forever.
5: When Abu Ghder returned to Al-Shifa Hospital in 2021, he was brought on as a neurosurgeon, and ultimately, he became head of the department.
2: We built a good neurosurgery department years ago. We really needed a program like that. And finally, we were able to build it for the trainees. I swear, it was
5: like a like a dream. Then came October the 7th. Abu Ghder and his family could have left Gaza, He has U.S. residency. His wife and kids are American citizens. But he says,
2: I couldn't leave my patients, but also as the head of the department, I was supporting my team.
5: So he told his family to go ahead and leave without him, but they refused. Abu moved his wife and five children into a small office at the hospital, where he hoped they would be safe. Meanwhile, he was in the operating room all the time who calls children as young as two with devastating injuries.
2: Skulls that are completely crushed, sometimes shrapnels filling the brain.
5: Patients with severe wounds, barely conscious, were often brought in with no IDs, no family members. So Aboghder and his team would write on their bodies, anonymous patient one, anonymous patient two. Then, a 40-year-old woman was brought in. 60% of her body was covered in burns.
2: Frankly, I I couldn't even recognize her from how burnt she was.
5: That patient was not anonymous. It was Aboghder's own sister. Her name is Dahlia.
2: It was the hardest thing ever to receive her in such a state and uh, how many burns she had.
5: She died shortly after. But Aboghder had no time to mourn. Water, fuel, and essentials like anesthesia were running out. Doctors were forced to answer a harrowing question, who lives and who dies?
2: It was so hard. These are my people, my community. Your goal as a physician is to heal them, not to decide who I'm going to treat and who I will not treat.
5: Then Israeli forces encircled El Shifa hospital, alleging there was a Hamas command center beneath the complex. Inside the hospital, it was chaos.
8: They we were no
2: longer able to offer patients any service because there was no electricity. Most of the patients who were in the ICU actually died because there were no resources.
5: Abu Ghder had become a mere witness to the suffering and death of his people. He decided it was time to get his family and himself out of Gaza. In late November, they crossed the border into Egypt.
2: I don't think we will be uh, able to go back soon. My house is gone and everything is gone.
5: Today, he's in the United Arab Emirates. He keeps in constant contact with his young trainees who are still in Gaza, as are his elderly parents. He says he lives in dread that each phone call will bring more bad news. But when he talks to his children, he pushes those darker thoughts away and repeats what his parents told him so many years ago. Tomorrow will be better. For NPR News, I'm Farah Yusri.
1: Rent has skyrocketed in the United States. That means Americans are handing over a bigger portion of their paycheck to their housing costs, leaving less money for things like food, electricity, and commuting. The pandemic and inflation have both played a role in pushing rents higher. But Whitney Ergood-Obreki, senior research associate at Harvard's Joint Center on Housing Studies, says it's not all bad news.
3: In some markets, rents are actually going down now, but we're in such a hole from those massive rent increases that it's going to take a little while to get ourselves out of that.
1: NPR's Jennifer Ludden covers housing and joins us now to talk about how we got here and what it would take for things to change hi Jennifer hi there so as we've heard a record high share of people are facing painfully high rents how did the US housing market get to this point So there are a
3: lot of factors, but I would say there's one big one that underlies them all, and that is that the U.S. has a massive housing shortage. It goes back to the 2008 housing crash. A lot of home builders went out of business. And really, for a decade, economists say the U.S. did not build enough. And that has led to an incredibly tight market. So that helps explain why. And then we had the pandemic, and people started going remote, moving all over the country and you really saw rents skyrocket double digit increases because there just was not a lot out there um, in some places vacancy rates hit one and two percent then on the heels of that there was high inflation mm-hmm. and skyrocketing mortgage rates so that meant a lot of people who wanted to buy a home got priced out they are now stuck renting which makes the rent market even tighter and one other big factor you know wages just have not kept pace with rising rents uh, over the past two decades according to Harvard's Joint Center for Housing Studies median rents went up a whopping 21% but the median income for renters only 2% 2%
1: over 20 years Wow. And when prices rise, in general, it's often the lowest income Americans who feel it the most. Is that the case here?
3: It is, but they're definitely not the only ones. Mm -hmm. Because again, prices are up across the board. In fact, the Harvard study finds middle income renters making between about $30,000 and $75,000 were the most likely to see their rent go up to the point where it became unaffordable. And even people working full time, the study found one third of them cannot afford their housing costs. But absolutely for the lowest income renters, they are squeezed the hardest. Harvard finds that a record 83% of them now pay more than a third of their income for rent and utilities. And for a very big chunk of that, it's more than half their income. And you know, there is a striking racial disparity. Black and brown people are disagreeing disproportionately rent burdened. They're also much more likely to be evicted, which of course makes it even harder to find a place to live.
1: If people are spending most of their income on rent, how does that affect the rest of their budget?
3: Yes, there is not much left for many people. You know, the researcher we heard from Whitney Aragona says for the lowest income renters, uh, the amount left has dropped almost in half. And the things that people used to do to find cheaper housing don't always work anymore. So, you might not be living in as good of a neighborhood. You might be commuting farther. You might be sacrificing the quality of your school system to, to try to live in affordable housing. And often, what we're seeing is that even when people are attempting to make these trade offs, they still end up paying too much for housing. She says research shows that when faced with this, people spend less on things like food, less on health care. They don't save for retirement. They may not be able to save at all. They rack up more debt. U.S. credit card debt is at a record level and delinquency rates for all kinds of debt are up. And, you know, for people who want to eventually buy a home, high rents make it a lot harder to save up for that.
1: At the same time, we're also hearing that the market for people who want to buy a home is cooling off a bit. Is that also happening with rentals? It is, yes. This past year, Redfin says nationwide
3: rents only rose about 1% on average, and they've even dropped a bit in some places that have been really overheated. Um, A main reason for that, you know, even though there is a massive housing shortage, there is a lot more construction now. Our our colleague Scott Horsley spoke with Kim Betancourt, who tracks the rental market for Fannie Mae.
4: Right now, underway, what I call holes in the ground, cranes in the sky, a million units that's a lot we need it we absolutely need it but it's primarily concentrated in about 15 18 metros
3: and to be clear even in those places it's only going to help so much Uh, most new construction is at the higher end of the market there's a lot of demand for that plus land and construction costs are so expensive it's just not profitable to build low-cost apartments unless you have government subsidies
1: All right. So there's this massive shortage of affordable housing. The market, despite new development, is not going to be able to fix it on its own. So what is happening to try and create places that people can actually afford to rent?
3: There is a lot going on in states and cities. Okay, for one thing, a growing number are starting to open up their zoning. They're allowing townhouses and small apartments in places that have long been restricted to single family homes. Now, this is controversial. There are lawsuits. Uh, Many worry that these multifamily buildings are going to ruin their suburb. And not everything that gets built this way is really that affordable, but the idea is to add supply to the market and over time bring prices down. Another zoning change some places are requiring or encouraging developers to include a specific number of low cost units in a building. We've also seen voters in dozens of places approve spending to build new affordable housing. And there's a really active tenants' rights movement. Uh, You've seen groups around the country have helped pass rent control in some cities. Um, That's also controversial. Some economists say it can lead to fewer low-cost places because developers need to make money. And if they can't, they won't build as much. But activists say, look, construction takes years and there are so many renters who need relief right now.
1: Yeah. And so bottom line, what is the reality right now for people who can't escape rising rents? Okay. well, I I would like to just note a
3: very important but harsh reality. As rents have gone up, we have also seen homelessness rates rise. And, And there are certainly a lot of reasons someone may end up living on the street But a landmark study in California last year found unaffordable rent was a really key part in why many lost their housing. For others, you know, people have always moved for cheaper housing. These days, you may have to go farther. The website Apartment List says a lot of renters are moving to different states where housing costs less. Um, For a while, we've also seen a steady rise in adults living with their parents. Um, The Pew Research Center found the most common reason for that is financial. And there's been a bump in more affordable communal living. It's maybe a bit fringe, but you really have whole buildings now that are designed with private bedrooms and shared living spaces to help bring down the rent. So it does seem like it's going to be a tough market for a while, and people may just need to get creative to find ways to get by.
1: NPR's Jennifer Ludden, thanks. Thank you. This is NPR News. We all know exercise is good for us, but working out it can be hard. And when there are setbacks — injury, illness, or whatever life throws your way — it can be really discouraging. The thing is, you don't have to be a superhero to get more fit. Little goals can be as important as big ones. And gardening, running errands, playing with your kids — thankfully, all of that counts as movement. For NPR's Life Kit podcast, reporter Asia Drain brings us some tips about how to weave exercise into your life, no matter how your life changes.
12: As a lifelong dancer, I was devastated to be couch ridden for months after a back injury. But while scrolling through TikTok, I found a personal trainer who really spoke to me.
13: With a chronic illness, being able to move your body may not always be the easiest. It may not move in the way you want it to. It may tire quickly. But moving with intention makes a difference in your physical, mental, and emotional well-being.
12: That's Samantha Salvagio, an NASM-certified personal trainer, patient leader, and behavior change specialist. Salvaggio was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis and had to change her relationship with exercise. My injury is temporary and vastly different from her lifelong condition. But Salvagio's insights made me realize that no matter what your condition, our bodies all go through changes at some point. She says... To design an adaptable
13: fitness plan, put the big goals on the back burner and focus on the smaller ones day to day. If you're focusing on just on the end result, it can be really hard to see like the small progress that you're making throughout that can really just serve as motivation versus just focusing on the end result and then being discouraged that you're not there. Silvaggio says think about it like this. One step at a time can still get you to your goal. If you just take off a sheet of paper towel off of a roll every day you're not going to really notice any change like it's so small you won't notice but then over the course of a month you're going to run out of paper towels
12: we know that the key to progress in fitness is consistency so to stay motivated try tracking all of your movement activities not just your workouts physical activity is defined as any movement not just exercise workouts according to the national health interview survey cleaning the house running errands gardening going for a run lifting weights it all matters and it all adds up salvaggio kept a little planner where she wrote down everything
13: being able to like look back that week or that month and see all these little times that i moved just was really empowering because it's like wow that's a promise i'm keeping to myself And it was more motivating to, like, continue. Before you know it,
12: those small goals become the big ones you had sitting on the back burner this whole time. And even if you have setbacks, Salvaggio says when you're trying to bounce back, don't try to overdo it. Start small.
13: Let's just do five minutes and start and then see how we feel after that. Sometimes I'll go for another five minutes and then end up stopping. Sometimes I end up doing the whole thing and... Then other times it's just like, no, this is not the thing today.
12: And that's okay. You'll get to where you want to go, but you have to meet yourself where you are first. For NPR News, I'm Asia Drain.
1: are listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
6: This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. Glad you're with us. Hope you'll stay with us. Up next, the New Yorker Radio Hour at six and David Remnick talks with John Lovett, a co-host of Pod Save America.
1: Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars.
6: Clear skies overnight, lows in the 20s, sunny 30s tomorrow and again Tuesday, 34 degrees in Boston.
4: We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet, with the Xfinity 10G network, so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. And Groton Hill Music Center, presenting Nickel Creek Live, March 15th, dining and free parking less than an hour from Boston. GrotonHill.org slash tickets.
11: Support for NPR comes from this station, and from Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. From FJC, a foundation of donor-advised funds working to maximize the impact of charitable giving and to create customized philanthropic solutions, learn more at fjc.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at MacFound.org. From NPR News, this is all things considered. I'm Camila
1: Dominowski. Boston, Massachusetts, was the cradle of the American Revolution, and was also the first American colony to legalize slavery in 1641. Nearly 400 years later, the city of Boston is grappling with that legacy. In 2022, the city created a task force to consider reparations to the descendants of enslaved people. In What is Owed," a new podcast from GBH News, reporter Soraya Wintersmith explores what reparations could look like and how that debate is reflected across the nation and the globe.
7: It's three o'clock on a weekday afternoon at the John Hancock Memorial in the Granary Burying Ground in Boston. The site is kind of like a who's who of the American Revolution. There are graves for important figures like Thomas Paine and Samuel Adams. Every year, millions of tourists pass through here to visit the grave of John Hancock. You know John Hancock. Tour guides tout the man's great contributions to the country But what you might not know, buried beside that much-celebrated founding father's grave is a man he enslaved. His name was Frank. Like many founding families, the Hancocks claimed several people as property, and they made their money in commerce based on products produced by the enslaved. That fortune bankrolled much of Boston's pre-revolutionary activism. The tour guides here often refer to Frank as Hancock's servant. They say the two men must have been close because of how closely they were buried. Frank's contributions to the country have never been documented. Neither were the roles of countless other enslaved people, people who helped set Boston's trajectory to become a leader in health, education, and technology. They were rarely recorded. Instead, U.S. history is full of portraits of heroic white people, mostly men. Boston
14: has a deep racial history and there's a lot of trauma that so many of us uh, still carry. We like to talk about Boston as a seat for the
7: abolitionist movement. We don't like to talk so much about the role that Boston played in helping to finance this boom and trade that was dehumanizing of Black folks in this country. This duality has always existed throughout Boston's history. There's the facts and figures most Bostonians pride themselves on, like Boston being one of the first places in the U.S. to ban slavery. Then there's also the history Black Bostonians have been trying to hold the city accountable for, like being part of the first colony to legalize slavery and, much later, clinging to segregation around the end of the civil rights era. Now, Boston has taken it upon itself to bring both narratives together and address the harm. In 2022, the city of Boston made a commitment to address its legacy of oppression since the institution of slavery. And the tool, Mayor Michelle Wu proclaimed, is reparations.
12: Today we're announcing a reparations task force to bring together experts and those with lived experience and deep community connections to help us begin the process.
7: The idea of a city giving reparations to its residents is a relatively new one. Most of the time when we talk about reparations, it's in a national context that harkens back to the post-Civil War promise of 40 acres and a mule for those recently freed. So. As Boston finds itself, yet again, on a journey to be one of the first in the country, we're on a parallel journey to unpack what reparations could look like. When a city as old as the nation declares its time to address its legacy of Black oppression, how might that work? To understand how Boston ended up at this moment to consider reparations for its Black residents, we have to go back to 2020. We were enduring the COVID-19 pandemic.
6: Today, I'm declaring a state of emergency in Massachusetts. Uh, We're asking people to stay home if possible. Practice social distancing.
7: Navigating a contentious presidential election.
6: Will you shut who is up, your, man, Listen. Are fine. you in favor of law and order? I'm in favor of law. Are you follow Are you in it, favor? And of
7: watching order? it all isolated, indefinitely, in our homes. These realities dominated much of what we saw in the news, until.
2: Uh-huh. Bro, get up, and get in the car, man. I will. Get up, and get in the car. I can't move. I've been wiping the whole car, <laughs> Get up, and get in the car. Mama. Get up. We get Mama, in the car right. I can okay.
7: Millions of people saw footage of George Perry Floyd dying as a police officer knelt on his neck during an arrest.
2: Mama. Is a, Mama. A yeah.
11: Mama.
7: Mama. It was the only other story dominating headlines. And the restlessness of being at home, combined with heightened political energy, suddenly got people off their couches.
11: How do we get out of this mess? Revolution, nothing less. How do we no get peace. out of this mess? No, no, peace. no
7: And from this moment, something started to give way. When it comes to policymaking, timing matters. That's Tanisha Sullivan, president of the Boston branch of the NAACP. She, like many people around the country, was looking for a way to capture the spark during the pandemic and move her community towards greater systematic change. Sullivan decided this was the moment to push the city of Boston to explore reparations. We might never get an opportunity like this again, where not only the minds, but the hearts of people are open. And this seemed like the right time to get it done. Sullivan recognized that any push for reparations was gonna need a political champion. Enter Julia Mejia. Everyone thought I was crazy because I decided to file a hearing order around reparations. The proposal called for Boston to fund a two-year community-led commission to do two major things. Examine Boston's culpability in the oppression of Black people since the time of slavery. And recommend reparations proposals after careful study of the concept. But the proposal was controversial. Mejia says it was the most difficult piece of legislation she's ever carried. She got criticism from all corners. Beyond community criticism, there was an arguably bigger problem. Mejia's council colleagues were skeptical. So on December 14, 2022, Julia Mejia walked into the council chambers at Boston City Hall, not knowing whether she had enough votes to approve the proposal now known as docket number 0239. Mr. Clerk, can you do a roll call vote? Somehow, all 13 councilors voted yes.
6: Docket number 0239 has received a unanimous vote.
14: I am happy with the outcome that Boston, one of the most racist cities in the country, is going to be able to have a mechanism to study the harm and hopefully repair it.
7: But Boston's new reparations task force stumbled out of the gate. After Mayor Wu announced her picks for the panel in February, 2023, they didn't actually meet until May. The slow start, combined with some surprising headlines, raised doubts. Was the city of Boston actually going to take reparations seriously? It's a huge moment when any government body declares a time to acknowledge and remedy its past wrongs. For Black people, who have waited centuries, it's momentous. And this tension we're seeing in Boston is the same tension we're seeing all across the country.
3: The town of Evanston made history in 2021 when it became the first municipality...
4: California's first-of-its-kind task force on reparations for Black Americans has... The City Council of Asheville, North Carolina unanimously voted to provide reparations to Black residents of the city.
7: In places like the state of New York and cities like San Francisco and Detroit, commissions are forming, researchers are studying, and people are asking... What is the debt to Black people in those communities? What historic points should we begin to examine? And how do we measure and assess harm to Black people? Are municipal and state governments truly prepared to acknowledge their culpability? And what about the federal government? Is there really a feasible way to repay Black people, all Black people? As Boston goes on a journey to answer questions like these for itself, we're exploring too, looking locally and nationally at this moment in history when reparations finally seem possible, searching for an answer to the ultimate question when it comes to America's so-called original sin and all it has entailed. What is owed?
1: Soraya Wintersmith is the host of the podcast, What is Owed" from GBH News in Boston. You can subscribe anywhere you get podcasts. Remember the sourdough portion
14: of the pandemic? You know, we were on our phones a lot. We were watching the news a lot. And something that kept coming up on my news feeds were sourdough, sourdough, sourdough.
1: That's Karen Quiñones of Monrovia, California. She was a nurse whose surgical center was shut down. Surrounded by lockdowns and curfews and isolation and wildfires and an earthquake, she decided to try baking this bread she kept hearing about. It grew into more than she'd imagined. Today, Quiñones is the owner of Wildflower Bakery. I asked her how her very first attempts at sourdough turned out.
14: Bad, really bad. (laughs) At the time, my first loaf was a May of 2020 after making my sourdough starter about two weeks prior. And I thought it was the best tasting bread I had ever tasted. But now in hindsight, I take a look at the bread and it was actually pretty gummy and it was over fermented. I just didn't know what I was looking for. I really didn't know what I was doing. I was just happy that it looked like bread and Mm -hmm. it tasted like bread. I have made many a loaf of sourdough like that. (laughs) (laughs) So I was just like, wow, I'm making bread, you know? So it's kind of a magical thing to be able to do something like make bread. Um, I've been a cook for a really long time and there hasn't been anything as satisfying to me as making a loaf of bread.
1: Right. And how did you learn how to make sourdough in these conditions where you're in lockdown, you're not working, everyone's (laughs) stuck at home? How did you do it?
14: You know, um, I always say I went to the University of YouTube. That's where I got my education. (laughs) So I followed some YouTubers, uh, Joshua Weissman. I used his first uh, loaf. And then from there, you kind of branch out. As things kind of opened up towards the end of 2020, I finally had a tartine loaf. And they're pretty famous in San Francisco, kind of globally now. And I bought their cookbook. And that cookbook actually really helped me streamline the baking that I do now it's very straightforward and that's kind of what really I would say improved my baking because I started having a better understanding of fermentation of temperature of um, what I'm supposed to be looking for.
1: And so today you have a bakery, Wildflower, and you use local freshly milled grains, which is a trend that seems to be growing among bakers. Why is that important to you?
14: I really wanted to invest in um, my environment. I wanted to invest in farmers who were doing right by you know, our ecosystem. Um, It is more expensive. Hopefully one day it won't be an expensive thing to invest in, Um, but it became part of my bakery ethos.
1: Karen, you described
14: the process of teaching
1: yourself to make bread. Did you, on this journey, did you ever struggle with feelings of doubt about whether you'd be able to pull off becoming a professional bakery?
14: I still struggle with that a little bit. Sourdough is very uh, temperature related, humidity related. And it seems like even now, four years in, I'll have a bad bake. Usually when the seasons change and I get accustomed to what my temperature is for, let's just say winter, and then spring will creep up on me and then I'll find, oh, I'm over fermenting my bread. So I still make mistakes. We all make mistakes. So I have to allow myself that, um, I hate to use the word failures because, you know, with any mistake you make, it's a learning opportunity. Um, but yeah, I do definitely struggle with that still.
1: I make bread badly. Uh, lots of, <laughs> I will use the word failure very easily. The process is, it can be long, it can be messy, sticky. What
14: about it appeals to you? So many things. Um, I love the transformation, how you can get In the beginning, it's just like a sloppy, sticky, Mm -hmm. like, you know, just messy. And how it evolves as it's starting to become alive, if you will, it looks very inert, unalive and boring. And then as the yeast and bacteria and the microbes do their job, it completely transforms into a tender, smooth, soft, airy, jiggly thing in your hand. And I love handling the dough. I love how mindful it is. I love that you need to pay attention to it, and um, the microbes are really doing all the work. You're just kind of the steward of it, and you're and you're making sure things don't go too far. You're not pulling it too soon. You know, when I used to recover a patient coming out of anesthesia, you really had to watch the patient and keep an eye on it, make sure everything was fine. They were they were okay. So, Bread is very similar. You really have to keep your eye on it. It's mindful. It changes in your hands. I love shaping dough. It's so relaxing. I envision one day that I would have a huge shaping table and I would have friends around the table and we're all shaping dough just talking and making bread. It just, to me, is the most relaxing thing I've ever done.
1: Does your starter have a name?
14: (laughs) It does.